0: Well, we are here in week two of our series, Atonement, and we are staring straight ahead at the upcoming celebration of Easter and asking a huge question, why did Jesus have to die? And I told you that if I had five seconds to answer that question, I would answer it just like most people do, that Jesus died for our sins. The problem is most of us have never given it thought about what that means or given it more than five seconds of thought, and therefore we have a five-second understanding of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And so for these weeks leading up to Easter, we're digging deep and diving into a five-week understanding of the atonement and the bigger picture and deeper meaning that Jesus died For our sins. And last week, we started by looking at what sin does to us when we sin against our perfect Heavenly Father. And we saw this pretty clear and unmistakable pattern that sin harms us, sin enslaves us, sin controls us, sin imprisons us, sin destroys us, sin separates us from God. And ultimately, sin's end game is that it works to kill us. And the amazing bottom line that we saw out of that, and and, and if you think like, that sounds like bad, terrible news. It is bad, terrible news. But out of the bad, terrible news, the good news of the atonement is that at the cross, Jesus died to undo what sin has done to you. That's what the atonement is, that Jesus died to undo what sin has done to you, to undo what broke you, to undo the the hurt that was done to you, to undo the the enslavement of sin, the control of sin, to undo the death of of sin, to undo the, the separation of God that comes about because of our sin. He died to undo what sin has done to you, and that's what we call atonement. The question then becomes, well, how did God, through Jesus' death on the cross, how how did God undo what sin had done to you? What exactly does that mean? And when you look to what the New Testament teaches and what the early church uh, and every faithful church throughout the last two thousand years has believed, there are three things that happened at the cross, and this is what, what we're going to be talking about for the next three weeks. There are three things that happened at the cross: a victory was won, a debt was paid, and a sacrifice was made. A victory was won, a debt was paid, and a sacrifice. Was made again. If you want a preview or outline of what the next few weeks are t- going to talk about for the next three weeks, there you go. And today we start with the victory that was won. And to understand the victory that was won, we actually first need to unpack and understand and refamiliarize ourselves with what feels like a familiar term, but may mean something different in light of our sin. It's the word enemy. It's the word enemy. Matter of fact, if you've got an enemy right now, would you? No, just kidding. Like that'd be like like everyone's like we, we, to understand and familiarize yourself with the word enemy, we live in a world that has many dif- definitions of enemies. We live in a world with many, many broad, different, like we broadly define enemies. You could have people that are competitors that are enemies. And this, this is Mac versus PC or Apple versus Android. They compete over the same space. They compete over the same customers. And so we view them as enemies. They're really just com- competitors, okay? They're competitors, not so much enemies, but we call them enemies. Maybe it's people who have some bad blood. This is people who had something happen one time or maybe a few times and now people think they dislike each other forever on a celebrity scale? This is Selena Gomez versus Haley Bieber, okay? This is Chris Rock and Will Smith or not but, but, but like this is maybe Taylor Swift and Kanye, or Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, or Taylor Swift and Jake Gyllenhaal. Hey, Taylor, you're the problem. It's, I mean, it, like maybe you're the problem. It's you, I, I don't know. You know, anyway, we got, then you, you got you know, competitors, you got bad blood, you got rivals. These are people who have competed for so long, they started to dislike each other. Now, I'm a Packers fan, okay? I grew up knowing that the Bears were our enemies were the bears are enemies would i would i if i saw any person from the bears on, on like on the street would i actively dislike and hate them maybe i don't know but did i have a reason to other than that they cheered for a team that i cheered against no they're rivals we compete so often they start to dislike each other i grew up knowing the vikings were our enemies Not so much the Detroit Lions, you know? But were they they actively fighting me? No. Were they even actively opposing the Green Bay Packers when they weren't on the same field together? Not really. They were rivals, not so much enemies. Now we have opposition. This is unfortunately a lot of modern politics, right? We got right and left and we're on the opposite side, so we become enemies, right? And then we have something what I would call at war, this is, this is the people who are at war. This is Russia and Ukraine, right? This is the U.S. and allied forces versus Iraq in the Persian Gulf War in the early 90s. This is allied forces of the world versus the axis, axis forces of Japan, fascist Italy, and Nazi Germany in World War II. And when you're at war, every waking moment is spent in a life or death battle with every thought and every ounce of energy dedicated to personal survival and defeat of the opposing side. This final description is the closest to what we're going to talk about today as we remind ourselves of two incredibly important truths when we, when we talk about the, the enemy, when we talk about a victory that was won by God, by Jesus on the cross. When we talk about a victory that was won, we have to first understand, number one, that there is an enemy of God, and number two, there is an enemy of your soul. There is an enemy of God and there is an enemy of your soul. That is a truth that we have to understand if we're going to understand the victory that was won at the cross by Jesus. Number one, there is an enemy of God. Irenaeus, the early church father said this, the devil is a robber, a rebel, a tyrant, a usurper, unjustly laying hands on that which does not belong to him. Him, The devil or Satan, the accuser, is the enemy of God. Before he's the enemy of you, he is the enemy of God. And we see this happening throughout scripture. We see from different examples and different stories of what we're told throughout scripture, different ways in which the devil has opposed God. In the beginning, he fought God for control in heaven. He was opposed to God himself. In the garden, he fought against God for control of humanity and earth. He was opposed to those God loves because they were made in the image of God. He wants to undo what God had done. It uh, wants to destroy the creation of God because he wants to uh, fight and oppose God in the desert before Jesus would, you know enter his public ministry in the desert. He fought against God for control of Jesus. He tried to tempt Jesus, to throw Jesus off course for what Jesus was here to accomplish. He, he was opposed to the plan to save humanity. Now that's some pretty obvious ways the enemy of God stood opposed to God. There's a million smaller ways in scripture where Satan worked to oppose the plan and the purposes of God. Tried to take the people of God off of course of the purpose of God. You got Cain, you got Cain hey, God likes your brother better than you. You should go deal with that. Who urged Cain? What pre- tempted Cain? What tempt, what, what you know, pushed Cain toward the idea of becoming the first murderer recorded in history? It was the enemy of God. We have, at, at the Tower of Babel, people, you should build a tower that will allow you to go fight against heaven. To, I mean, why would they build a tower to, to, uh, to, to the heavens? They were going to try to fight God. Who would ber- urge them to do that? It was the devil himself. Before the flood, who led and lured humanity into that much weak, wickedness and sin? The devil, the, e- the enemy of God. Abraham received a promise. Who led him towards a compromised version? I believe it was the devil himself. Moses was born. Who led Pharaoh to issue a decree to kill all Hebrew boys? God promised the nation and the nation, the land of Israel and the promised land. Who made the nation fearful and doubtful of God? Every step of the, of the way, while he's opposing people, he's actually trying to throw people off the purpose of God because he is opposed to God himself. There is an enemy of God from the very beginning until this very day. There has been an enemy of God and because there is an enemy of God and because God loves you, there is an enemy of your soul. Because God loves you and God loves me, we have had a target on our backs from the moment that we entered the world. To fight God, the enemy seeks to take you out by any and all means and all methods necessary. And to do that, again, to unpack what what he will do to you and what the enemy of your soul is trying to do to you, much as what sin does, the scripture teaches us a few things that the enemy of our soul is trying to do to us to keep us away from God, to hurt God, to mess with God by messing with us. The first thing is that the enemy of your soul seeks to enslave you. We talked about this last week, but in 2 Peter 2, 2, 18 and 19, for by uttering boastful empty words, they seduce with fleshly desire and debauchery, people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them." The devil knows, the accuser, the enemy of God, and the enemy of your soul knows that if he can defeat you, that if he defeats you, he gets to enslave you. He works to enslave you, to keep you enslaved, to keep you under control, to keep you locked up, to keep you as his slave, where he calls the shots while you think you're calling the shots, and God's certainly not calling the shots. He seeks to enslave you. Number two is he seeks to imprison you. The enemy of your soul seeks to imprison you. In 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, Paul wrote, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. There's there's an enemy of your soul who not only wants to call the shots of your life, but wants to keep you shackled, wants to keep you bound, wants to keep you from being free, wants wants to keep you from seeing the sunlight, wants to keep you from knowing that there is an existence outside of that cell. He seeks to imprison you. Number three is the enemy of your soul seeks to break you. In Galatians chapter six, verse eight, Paul wrote, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a person sows, he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. That word destruction. We talked about this last year, last week, that, that, that sin longs to destroy you. There is an enemy of your soul who longs to destroy you, who longs to break you, who longs to hurt you, who longs to get you to make a choice that will break yourself, who wants to break you, break your life, break your connection with God, break your connection with others, break your reputation, break your attempts at, at, at holiness and break your attempts at righteousness. Break your attempts and break your attempts to live Live life as God intended. He seeks to break you. In an attempt to hurt the one who loves you, the God who loves you, he seeks to break you. And the fourth and final thing that he seeks to do is he seeks to devour you. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says this, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone that he can devour. Now that word devour, we could also write the word consume. He is looking to eat you up and spit out the bones. He is literally looking to devour and consume your life, to destroy your life, to break your life, to eat you up and spit out the bones. That is what the enemy of your soul wants to do to you, to mess with God because he's the enemy of God and God loves you this is the truth we have to understand again this this is a big like first of all this is again what sin does to you when we sin when we give into the enemy this is what sin does we need to resist sin but even more than that we need to make sure that we have a baseline understanding as we live our lives in this world we need to understand that we do not live life on a neutral playing field we live life in the middle of a spiritual battlefield We do not live life. You do not live life in Las Cruces or wherever you find yourself. You do not live life there in the middle of a neutral playing field. You simply do not. You live life in the middle of a spiritual battlefield. You always have. There has not been a moment of your life that you have not been engaged in a spiritual battle. That you may not have known that you were involved, but you have been involved your whole life. There, have been, there has been an enemy of your soul trying to take you out, trying to break you, trying to devour you, trying to imprison you, and trying to enslave you for your entire life. And there is a God on the other side of it who Loves you and cares for you and wants to heal you and wants to bring you life and wants you to live life and wants to bring you purpose. And on the opposing sides of those fields, you find yourself in the middle. There's an ongoing battle for the world and for your soul. The world that we live in is not neutral. There is a war going on for your soul, for your future, for your family, for your freedom, and for your peace every moment of your life. The, the life that we live is not lived on a neutral playing field. It is lived in the middle of a spiritual battlefield. And this explains a great deal about your life, doesn't it? Like when you think about it, you're like, man, I, like, I've lived thinking that, like, that life was just kind of neutral and the world around me was, and my surroundings were just kind of neutral, but man, this explains a lot of my life. Why for some of you, as hard as you have worked to find freedom, you have never found it or been able to actually live in it. You found a moment of freedom, but you weren't. But you, all too quickly you were brought back to the things that had previously enslaved you because they don't let go so easily. Why for some of you, you've tried to find peace, but you've never found it. Or you found it temporarily, you didn't get to live with it for very long. You're like, oh my gosh, in the middle of the chaos of life, in the middle of the chaos of my mind, in the middle of chaos of my soul, I found peace because I found it all too quickly. I let it go. And I was pulled back to the life of chaos and the life of anxiety. Why for some of you, joy has been entirely conditional, but never unconditional. Why you've desired to live for God's purposes, but so easily find yourself drifting away from what you know God wants for you. Why you want to walk in the direction that God leads, but you so often find yourself having wandered off course. This is no accident. This is exactly what the enemy of God and the enemy of your soul wants for you. And it's a reality that we live in and experience because every moment of your life, there has been one who is working to harm and control and devour and destroy and imprison you. And here's the even worse news. Everything humanity has ever done to try to defeat the enemy in our own power has failed. You wanna take it even further? Everything that we ever will do in our own power to try to free ourselves, to try to find peace, to try to break away from the enemy and find our way to God and find our way to purpose and find our way to life, everything that we do in our own power will fail. And so with that understanding, in that context, that we actually receive the good news of the atonement. That we receive the good news of atonement. That in the middle of our spiritual battlefield, in the middle of the war for our souls, in the middle of the war for our world, in the little, in, in the, in the war, in the middle of the war for our very life itself, it's into that context that the good news of the atonement comes. That when Jesus went to the cross, he went to undo everything that sin has done to you. And in doing so at the cross, Jesus won a victory for you that you could never win. Jesus won a victory for you that you could never win. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus ultimately undo? He worked to undo everything the enemy of your soul has tried and has done and is still working to continue to do to you. At the cross, Jesus won a victory for you that you could could never win. We're told this in Colossians chapter two, verses thirteen through fifteen. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. In, in, in Colossians two, Paul wrote this: "You were dead. You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away." then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. You're like, yeah, I, that's, that's what the atonement, like it's, for- it's like, my sins are forgiven. Woo, yeah, like that's like, like, like yeah, that Jesus shed his blood on the cross. So we, we all need forgiveness so we can be free. And, and Paul's like, okay, it, it's bigger than that. That's, that's the starting point. Like that's a big deal, but that's the starting point. He goes on to explain how he did it. He says, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In other words, there is a record of sins against you when your life is apart from Jesus. But in Jesus, God took the record of wrongs against you, the record of your sin, the record of your wrong, the record of your poor choices, the record of every time you gave in to the enemy of your soul. He took the record of it and he nailed it to the cross. And then Paul goes on to tell us this, in this way, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. He says, okay, Here's what happened. Jesus died to forgive your sins and to bring you back to life. And as he did it, he canceled the record of wrongs by nailing it to the cross. And when he nailed it to the cross, he disarmed and he showed how powerless all the spiritual rulers and authorities and enemies of God truly are. And he shamed them publicly with his victory over them on the cross. In other words, Christians believe, Paul believed, the author of a half, about half of the New Testament believed that by 6 p.m. on Good Friday, the world had become a different Place, that even before the resurrection of Jesus the death of Jesus had accomplished something a full and total and complete victory for you that you could never win for you and the full victory of Jesus the totally total victory of Jesus here's what it looks like it was a victory over death it was a victory over sin that disarmed of opposition powers and it publicly exposed the opposition of God let me just unpack what each of those mean just a little bit from colossians chapter 2 A victory over death. See, when an innocent man dies, the idea of death as a punishment or consequence for sin is undone. It makes a mockery of the whole thing. Jesus won a victory over death by dying as an innocent man. He conquered death. By being the only innocent person to ever die he won a victory over death he won a victory over sin when jesus's blood was shed your sin is forgiven and you are free again the sinless spotless innocent blood of jesus was not shed for jesus's sin it was shed for yours. And because his innocent, spotless, sinless blood was shed, your sin and your shame and your spots are covered and washed clean. The one who attempts to hold you captive in sin now has no hold on you. Our wrong, our sin puts us into captivity because, but now there is no record of the charges because God, through Jesus, nailed them to the cross. The disarm, he did, in doing so, he disarmed the opposition powers. He stripped opposition forces of any power or weapons they have in the war against God or the war against you. He took away all power and all authority and all weapons and anything that they had to use to fight against you. And in doing so, he publicly exposed the opposition. He showed that the one who opposes God actually has no power to oppose God or to oppose you. He made it public so everyone would know he made it public so that everyone would know this explains the theory that for over 1700 years of the church has been known as Christus Victor or Christ the victorious Christus Victor or Christ the victorious that that at the cross on the cross before Jesus even rose from the dead by 6 p.m on Good Friday a victory had been won for you by the Christ who died for you you, that at the cross, Jesus won a victory through his suffering, through his bloodshed for you, through the pain that he endured, through the every bit of injustice that he endured. At that moment on the cross, Jesus won a victory for you, that you could never win for you that I could never win for me, that none of us in our best effort on our best day could ever win for ourselves, that in the battle for our souls, Jesus went to the cross for his heavenly father and for you. And he reigned victorious and he won a victory that you could never win and that I could never win. That in our own efforts, we'll always be enslaved. In our own efforts, we'll always dig ourselves a deeper hole in the prison that we find ourselves in in the control of the enemy. In our own efforts, we will always find ourselves more and more and more and deeper and deeper and deeper indebted to to, to the, 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 the one who is standing opposed to our souls and opposed to our life. In our own efforts, that's where we all find ourselves. But thank God, Jesus went to the cross and as he shed his blood, his innocent, spotless, sinless blood, as he suffered and died an unjust death, he brought about a victory for you and for me that none of us could ever win for ourselves. He is Christ the victorious. He is Christ the victor over sin, over hell, over the devil, over the grave, over everything that would try to, that that would attempt to stand in the way of us knowing and living for our perfect heavenly father, Jesus won a victory and he won a total victory for you for all time. And because of Christ's victory, here's the amazing news of that. Because of Christ's victory, what flows from the cross is absolutely amazing. And I just want to let you, I'm going to give you all three of them and then we're going to talk about them for a little bit. But because of Christ's victory, we are rescued, we are redeemed, and we are reconciled to our heavenly father. We are rescued by our father in heaven. We are redeemed by our father in heaven. We are reconciled to our father in heaven. they talk about the idea of rescued. What rescue means is simply this, that where we find ourselves is not where we belong. Where we find ourselves living a life of sin is not where you belong. You were not created by your heavenly father to know and live a life of sin. That is simply true. You were not meant to live in the clutches of sin. You were not meant to live in a prison built for you by your sin. We do not find ourselves in our own own flesh, in our own efforts. We We find ourselves in places that we do not belong. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, what we're told by this is it says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. In Colossians 1 verse 13, he wrote this, God has rescued us, Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And that idea that God broke through the enemy lines, God stripped the enemy of opposition of its of all its power, he broke through the enemy lines, he broke through those who were imprisoning you, those who had control over you, those who had enslaved you, and he took with Jesus on the cross. He brought you from a place of slavery and a place of, of, of imprisonment, he brought you to a place where you are close to him. He says, he rescued us. He, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He did not just rescue us and leave us to, to, to fend for ourselves because we know what happens and he knew what happens when we when, when we're all on our own, that we all put ourselves right back in the prison. He says, he rescued us and he transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. He took you from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. He rescued you. And the good news that you need to understand today is if you find yourself wherever you are and however, for whatever reason you're watching, if you find yourself in a kingdom of sin, in a prison of sin, enslaved by sin, broken by sin, there is a God who sent his son to the cross to rescue you so that you do not have to look one more second at the walls of your sin, enslaved by your sin, controlled by the life of sin around you. You can be free and brought into the kingdom and close proximity to your heavenly father who loves you so much that he would send his son to win a victory for you that would free and rescue you. In Jesus, you are rescued. And I know what you're thinking. I don't like the thought that I would have to be rescued. Well, there are lots of thoughts in life that we don't like, but are reality. The reality of all of our lives is that apart from Jesus, we find ourselves in need of rescue. And life can be going great and everything is real shiny on the surface and your soul is still in need of rescue. And life can be absolutely, ter- absolutely terrible on the surface and you need rescue from God. Every one of us, the reality of our lives apart from Jesus is that we need to be rescued. We need someone to win a victory that will rescue us. And thank God at the cross, Jesus won that victory for you. In Jesus, you are rescued. Because of Jesus's victory, you are rescued. The second thing is because of Jesus's victory, we are redeemed. The idea is that we all sold ourselves into slavery. That while there is an opposition, while there is an enemy of God, he didn't make us do anything. We chose it. Unfortunately, we gave ourselves over into slavery by the enemy of God. That Jesus went to war to win our freedom. Redeemed simply means he he purchased our freedom. He brought us back or bought us us back that we are given a new status while we were while we were slaves we are now free in Jesus this is one of those times where the idea of the civil war in our own nation's history where a war was won for the freedom of an entire group of people that had been enslaved a war was fought and the side that won said that everyone that was enslaved is now free and they said that before the war was over That's why they went to war in the first place. In the middle of the war, a president stood up and said, because like, even while the war is still going on, I declare that they're all, I proclaim everyone is free. And then a war still had to be fought. Jesus is the one who finished the war for your freedom so that you could be free from the slavery of sin. You are redeemed. You are given a new status. You have gone from slave to free. You are given a, a new status from slave to free. This is what it means to be redeemed, to be bought back, to have your freedom be purchased for you. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, we're told, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works, that not only had slavery been a bad condition, slavery in in the act of slavery and everything that that the enemy of your soul did while you were enslaved, you got messed up and you got broken and you got hurt and you got damaged and there are some wounds and there is some uncleanliness. And in that, he cleansed, in in Jesus' victory, he cleansed us from all lawlessness. He redeemed us. He brought us back to the original state that we're supposed to be in. No one was born a slave. We were born free. We sold ourselves into slavery, and Jesus went to the cross so that we could be brought from slavery back to a place of freedom, be brought back to our original status. In 1 Peter 1.18, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with parables, perishable things like silver or gold. Mothers, you weren't bought by someone paying an actual physical like physical price of silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. You know that you were redeemed. You were brought back from your emptiness to a life that is full. You were, brought, you were bought back by the blood of Jesus from a place of, of, of unholiness and uncleanliness to a place where you stand in clean and perfect in, sight of, in, in the sight of your heavenly father, to be bought back from slavery, to be made free because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, if you find yourself where you know you are not living in the state that God intended you to live, not living for the purposes that God intended you to live, not living for the place that got like, that not, not living up to what God intended for you all along. The good news is that in Jesus at the cross, Jesus won a victory for you. He went to war for you. He battled for you. With with his own life and with and laid his own life down so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be brought back from the places that you had gone on your own, the, place, the slavery that you had sold yourself into, the mess that you had sold yourself into, so you could stand clean and free in the presence of your heavenly father, living as God intended for you from the beginning. And finally, you are reconciled. You are reconciled. You are brought back to proximity and alignment with God proximity and alignment with God. In Colossians chapter one, verses 19 through 22, we're told this, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault." You have been reconciled to God by the victory of Jesus on. The cross. And when we say you were reconciled, no, a lot, reconciled a lot of times is a, is a banking term or an accounting term, or you know, we're, we're reconciling our checkbook. If you still have a, a physical checkbook, I don't know how many of you do that. But it, it's making sure that it, the way many of us think about it, it's, it's, it's making sure that what we think we have is what we actually have. And the idea of what God did through Jesus on the cross, that is not a very good um, explanation of what reconciled means. I don't know how many of you are really familiar with lumber, but oftentimes, if you if you have a bunch of lumber and you're trying to build something, you want really straight pieces of lumber, right? You want you want you want completely straight pieces of of, of lumber. And what happens to lumber so often? Either at the store or because we you know, buy it and then it sits out in difficult conditions. If you're in New Mexico, it sits out in difficult conditions. If it's out for five minutes, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too windy, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so what happens is the the lumber that is supposed to be straight, the lumber that was made to be straight, the lumber that was cut straight, becomes warped and it becomes twisted and it becomes no longer, you know, the way that it was supposed to be. And one of the amazing things that you can do with lumber is as long as you have a straight piece of lumber, you can take the warped piece of lumber and you can bring it back to its original state. What you need is a clamp. You probably need a series of clamps. And what you do is you take the straight piece of lumber and you take the warped pieces of lumber and slowly, little by little by little, you put a clamp with a little bit of pressure and you put another clamp with a little bit of pressure and this and the and a clamp with a little bit of pressure. And the thing that was once so warped eventually becomes reconciled to the straight piece of lumber. It's got to come in proximity if it's going to be brought into alignment. Does this make sense? And what I love about this thing that Paul says in First in Colossians chapter 1, he says, as a result, he brought you into his own presence. He brought you into his own presence because of the, the victory of Jesus on the cross. We are brought into the presence of God, proximity to God, so that we can be brought into alignment with God. And if you wonder what this ultimately means, this simply means the cross is the clamp. The cross is the clamp. The cross is what brings you in proximity to God and what puts pressure on you so that you can be brought back into alignment with your heavenly Father. You, because of Jesus on the cross, you are reconciled to God. Isn't that good news? that there is a a God in heaven who loves you. And while there is an enemy who opposes him and because he opposes him, he opposes you, that God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son into this world to die on a cross, to win a victory for you that you could never win for you. And because of that victory, you are rescued. You, You are brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, and you are no longer a slave, but you are free because you have been redeemed. You are rescued, you are redeemed, and you are reconciled to God. You are brought into proximity so that you can be brought into alignment because the cross is the clamp. At the cross, Jesus won a victory that you could never win for you so that you could be brought back to the person that God created you to be, so you could be brought back from slave to free, and that in your freedom, you can be brought back into proximity and alignment with your heavenly Father. When we talk about the atonement, this is why the atonement is such good news. It's forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins but it's even bigger than that. That because your sins are forgiven, because Jesus died so that your sins could be forgiven, in doing so, a victory was won forever, for all time, and for every person who looks to Jesus. A victory we could never win for ourselves, but a victory that our heavenly father sent Jesus to win for us. And because of that victory, we are rescued and we are redeemed and we are reconciled to our heavenly father. And not just we, you. When you place your trust in Jesus, you are rescued from a kingdom of darkness. You are rescued from a life of slavery and you are restored to your original status and your original freedom before God. And you are brought into such close proximity that you would align your entire life back to the purposes and the plans of your heavenly father for you and for the world through you. That's amazing news. And as we said last week, that's still just scratching the surface because yes, a victory was won. And next week, we're going to talk about the debt that was paid for you. As we pray, some of you, you may need to, in this moment, make a decision to trust your heavenly father and celebrate and live in the victory that he has won for you through Jesus. As I pray, I would encourage you, if you're making that decision, I would encourage you to speak to your heavenly father right now and pray to him and let him know that you need the victory that he was won. You need to live in his victory. You need, yes, the forgiveness of your sins, but you need to learn how to live in the victory that he has won for you through Jesus on the cross. So as we pray, would you speak to your heavenly father right now? Heavenly father, thank you so much for Jesus's work on the cross. Thank you for the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and at the cross. Thank you that he won a victory for us, that he won a victory for me, that I could never win for myself, that we could never win for ourselves. And God, thank you that in the victory, he didn't just win a victory for you for the fame of heaven, although that would be amazing, but that he won a victory that brings victory to us as well. And because of that, we're rescued and we're redeemed and we're reconciled and we're brought back in close proximity to you so that we can be brought back into alignment with you. Thank you that we can know you and love you and stand in your presence because of the victory that Jesus won for us. Help us to live in that and to live from that every day, from now for the rest of our days. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.